Dr. Sue Stanfield from the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso, and this podcast will examine the role of the El Paso area during the U.S.-Mexico War. And helping me out today is Robert Diaz, a recent graduate from the Master's Program in History here at UTEP. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I guess to start, um, i kind of like to get a feel for uh, what this area was like prior to the U.S.-Mexico War. Um, like, when was El Paso founded, and also, like, when was it settled? I guess founding comes a little later. Sure, sure. And and the record can get a little murky, and it kind of depends on how far back you want to go. But Manso and Apache Indians were, were thriving in this area thousands of years ago. And uh, in 1598, Juan de Oñate, with a group of Spanish uh, conquistadors, arrived in what is known as Paso del Norte. And it's essentially this chasm, uh, this, uh, this valley in between these broad mountain ranges. And it's really one of the only places where you can pass on your way either to Santa Fe or down to Mexico City. And after the Pueblo Revolt of 1680, uh, a number of Tiwas, the, the precursors to our current Tigua tribe, they came from northern New Mexico after the Pueblo Revolt and settled here as well. So for for you know a millennia a millennium I should say um, native groups thrived here, but Spanish colonization also uh, showed up in El Paso around 1598, and you can see that well into the 1500s, 1600s, and 1700s with the mission system developing, and that's essentially um, what one would find in Paso del Norte prior to the. U.S.-Mexico War. One would have found several settlements along the riverbank. Um, historian W.H. Timmons, a, you know, he worked here at UTEP for many years and, and wrote several books about UTEP, or excuse me, not UTEP, about El Paso. Um, he states that there were six settlements along the banks of the Rio Grande. And of course, they were settled there because of the water and because of the vegetation that grew in the area. And these would have been uh, Paso del Norte, San Elisario, Islera, Socorro, Senecu, and San Lorenzo. Several of them are currently in El Paso County, and some of them are in present-day Mexico. And he estimates that there were anywhere between four and 8,000 people living in these settlements along the river. Okay. Um, so what would it have looked like in El Paso, let's say, 1836. Sure, sure. Who would have lived here? Well, it would have been uh, the descendants of the the Spanish and um, native tribes that that I just mentioned. But you also had beginning in eighteen hundred in eighteen hundred a number of Anglo settlers coming into this region, either for um, the the sort of new start that they could receive. Um, or because they were explorers and they liked the area and they decided to settle. El Paso, and I think the same can be said up to now, has always been sort of a hub of international commerce. So in 1836, it would have been a, a transportation hub for anyone traveling to Santa Fe or downward to Mexico City. Paso del Norte was one of the few areas where you could get water in a 100-mile radius. Okay. It was one of the areas where you could get some sort of sustenance because, I mean, for as dry as El Paso is now, there was actually a lot of vegetation. Onions grew, apples grew, grapes. Uh, 
this area was actually known for many years, beginning around the 1700s, for its past brandy, quote unquote, which was actually wine. Okay. Because El Paso had these tremendous vineyards along the banks of the Rio Grande. Yeah, so so it, it was far greener than it is now, okay. that's for sure. <laughs> Looking out my window, I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's it's hard to fathom, but it, it definitely was. So they would have, if you lived in um, what would become El Paso, you would likely um, engage in uh, dealing with traders and things going along that Ab- are passing through abso- north or south. Absolutely, and th- there are a number of great journals. I mean, sure, there there's a certain bias to them as well, but they... Um, they're from from American explorers, travelers. One is uh, Susan Shelby McGoffin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, her, her work is a bit mythicized and, you know, um, it takes a very Anglo perspective and, and, you know, one rooted in Manifest Destiny, of course. But you can also glean a sense of what El Paso and the Southwest would have looked like when she was traveling. And, and it's absolutely true. There were a number of explorers, trappers, traders, and this wasn't just true in the 1800s. This was true in the 16 and 1700s uh, with the Camino Real del Tierra Adentro, uh, one of the major uh, roads uh, between, you know, through Mexico. And it, it's interesting because that, that sort of international commerce continues today. And El Paso is still a hub in many ways. So what was, was El Paso considered part of Texas at this time? Are more part of Mexico or New Mexico? or It would have been disputed because of the Rio Grande. Of course, okay. um, Texas settlers, Americans, they considered the border the Rio Grande. Uh, Mexicans uh, eventually considered the border the Nueces River. Mm-hmm. So El Paso was a disputed territory. And, and I should point out that between 1800 and 1860, what is now known as El Paso, Texas, and, and Ciudad Juarez as well, it was part of, it was claimed by five different nations. Oh, wow. You have Spain uh, until 1821. You have Mexico from 1821 to 1848, the United States. Uh, and then if you consider the Confederacy a nation, that was one of them. El Paso was co- part of the Confederacy. And uh, you also have the Republic of Texas claiming this area. So, you know, it, it's fascinating. And I think more work needs to be done to sort of determine how the people living here, these eight, you know, four to 8,000 people were contending with these different identities, identities, exactly. Political identities, cultural identities. Um, and, and quite frankly, I don't think enough work has been done on that. And that's an area of history ripe for investigation. Well, we're going to look at in more detail, the the war with Mexico in a, a later podcast, but I'm kind of curious, um, since we're in that one looking more at politics, where was the fighting t- taking place? Because what little I know about it, it doesn't seem like much is, is going on in El Paso or there, this area. I know we're yeah, going to talk about yeah, a specific yeah. battle, but where where is most of the conflict occurring? Sure. So you're absolutely right. In terms of battles taking place here, certainly not many. There was one. The, the main theater of war was in, in present-day Mexico, really in the central states and along the eastern states. There were also several naval batter, ba- battles excuse me, along the, the Pacific coast and along the Gulf of Mexico. A lot of the marches down into Mexico did stem from a lot of the Midwestern states of the United States and uh, traveled through the American or what became the American Southwest and down into Mexico. And that's sort of how El Paso gets involved because it was one of those last stops before the main theaters of action down in present day. Oh, and just like a trading route, it's a military route as well. Exactly, exactly. Okay. 
So why don't you tell me a little bit about the battle that happens in this area? Sure, sure. So the Battle of Bracito, which was the only battle of the U.S.-Mexico War to be fought anywhere near El Paso, uh, took place about 45 miles outside of El Paso, Texas, in a little town called Mesquite, New Mexico. So if you're, you know, if you're ever driving from El Paso to Las Cruces or back, it's about 10 miles outside of Las Cruces, right before you get into the city proper. And it was led by Colonel Alexander Donovan from Missouri. He was actually an attorney, and he decided to give up his, his practice uh, to fight in the war. And he uh, gathered a group of volunteers, American volunteers. They were a ragtag group of soldiers. Um, the stories go that they didn't have a whole lot of money. They didn't have great uniforms. They didn't have great weapons. In the grand scheme of things, militarily, they were not very prepared. But they saw the cause to action. They, they, they decided, you know, this is something that, they, that was worth fighting for. And they marched downward into Paso del Norte. And the Battle of Bracito was a Christmas Day battle. So mm. um, the story goes, and, and, and I'll preface this by saying a lot of the historical record and narrative of the Battle of Bracito warrants reexamination. And I'll get to that in, in a second. But... Um, according to historians, the uh, American soldiers were outnumbered by the Mexican soldiers at least two to one. So there were anywhere from about one to two hundred American soldiers and and few and and far uh, more Mexican soldiers. Um, the battle, however, lasted about an hour. It didn't last more than than an afternoon. And at the end of it. Um, most of the Americans were still alive. The, the Americans suffered, suffered very few casualties. The Mexicans, on the other hand, suffered immense casualties, and a number of them were taken prisoner. It was after the battle, however, that the Americans traveled into Paso del Norte and stayed in this area, so more or less what's now downtown Juarez, for about a month. And that created some, some turmoil along this area, or within this area as well. So I might be completely off track. Mm -hmm. um, so when when you talk about Donovan coming, is this more like a, a militia, like from Missouri, or is it is it? I mean, because they're not regular army. I assume. Right, right. They're they're not part of the regular army, but they were one of many different uh, volunteer, volunteer regiments. Volunteer re regiments, exactly. Okay, exactly. And so what? You know, when you said he thought it was a good cause, mm -hmm. so what? What were they fighting for in their minds in 1846? So with, with this particular group of individuals, I think it really was that cause of manifest destiny, that desire to spread westward. Um, historian Amy Greenberg talks a lot about the, the desires of Americans when they were uh, initially supportive of this war. And, and at first, this was a war that, that many Americans could get behind. And it was, you know, also the way the war was framed that, it was Mexico that was the aggressor and they spilled blood on American soil. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was something really that could rile up uh, a number of people, especially as America saw that its, its role in the world was really to spread its, its, uh, its cause to the coast, to the Pacific coast, and, and even further than that for some. So when we look at the U.S.-Mexico War, mm -hmm. is this really just a skirmish between those two nations or were there sort of larger international implications? I think the, the international implications are immense. And, and it's interesting that the U.S.-Mexico War is one of those 
um, conflicts that the United States engaged in that doesn't get a whole lot of attention today. I, I like to call it the uh, the most important war you don't know anything about. And so it's important for several reasons. The, the, the first is that as a result of the war, which ended up with the United States winning and, and with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the United States received, or it, it, it essentially amassed about a third of its current landmass. So if you think of the Southwestern states, uh, if you think of the Western states, I mean, most of that came from the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo as a result of the U.S.-Mexico War. Mexico, on the other hand, lost about half of its territory. And well into the 19th century, they were struggling to stay afloat as a nation. And, and historians like Oscar Martinez, uh, who worked out of UTEP uh, for some time, he argues that Mexico very realistically may not have been a country if certain things had not gone its way. And during the 1860s and 1870s, you had European incursions into Mexico as well, you know, in this politically and, and militarily and, and economically viable, uh, or excuse me, vulnerable area. Um, and then there were American filibusters who were trying to make their way into Mexico as well. So, but today, I mean, you still see the effects of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And, and before I get to that, I, I also want to mention that after the Battle of Prasito, when, when the U.S. troops, uh, when, the, when, these, when these volunteers arrived in Paso del Norte, the historical record right now, or not necessarily the historical record, but the way historians portray the historical record, they, they seem to indicate that the relations between the Paso del Norte inhabitants, right, the, the Paseños, and the soldiers were amicable, um, Several historians talk about the, the parties that were thrown, the fandangos, and, and they get this mm-hmm. information from some of the journals of the soldiers who are here in Paso del Norte. So one is a, a, uh, a man named uh, John Hughes, and he was a teacher out of Kentucky, and, and he wrote that there was this large party and that the women here were beautiful and that the land was pristine. Uh, there was another volunteer from Illinois named George Gibson, and he says similar things. Um, and this has led some historians to say, well, everything was okay. And, and, and the uh, Paseño saw the Americans as liberators. And, and that, you know, if, if you, one common sense kind of makes that seem a little strange because the, the, the volunteers came as occupiers, right? They came yeah. with, with weapons and, you know, with, with a full force. And it's kind of hard to push back against that if you're in fear for your life. But, but aside from that, um, it, it, if you look a little bit further into the historical record, even if the relationship was amicable at first, or at least somewhat, and there was a um, something of a, of a moderate peace, within that month that the U.S. was in Paso del Norte, um, the troops ran out whatever goodwill may have existed. There, uh, there's record that a number of monuments and buildings were vandalized or destroyed, that documents from the diocese uh, went up in flames uh, as, as the Americans here got drunk and they just sort of made the area their own. And they were waiting for their new orders. Um, mm-hmm. So they really had nothing to do but to sort of uh, enjoy themselves in some very destructive ways. Um, and if you look at these sources from these American soldiers, they line up very interestingly and I think very accurately with, with Amy Greenberg's contention in, in, in her book, Manifest Manhood, that there seemed to be sort of a, a gendered component to these writings and, and to the way that these soldiers saw this area. You know, it was an area to be conquered, just, you know, like a woman. And you see that 
in their writings, right? This is the the mentality that some of them had. And Amy Greenberg connects this with with some of the writings of Sam Houston, but you kind of see this in the in the in the writings of these American soldiers as well. This is an area to be claimed. Uh, and and you know, and talking about the fair senoritas of the place, which is a quote uh, from mm-hmm. from these from these documents, um, they're 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 framing everything in this sort of taking of a possession or taking of of a woman or or a piece of land, um, and I think you can also see these documents as. Um, Travel narratives that are meant to advertise the area, that are meant to mm-hmm. get people into the to the region. Hey, there! Look, there are these beautiful women. There's there's this lush vegetation. There's this amazing, um, there are these amazing parties that are thrown. Why don't you come and settle as well? Uh, and as a matter of fact, some of the American soldiers they didn't they didn't go back with their uh, with their regiment. They they stayed. Hmm. Um, but I I just wanted to to include that. But but I think um, just just getting back to your question. Um, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which is still in effect to this day, it, it created the international border between the U.S. and Mexico. And the reason the Rio Grande is part of that border is because of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And, and I think also the, the lack of foresight that came from not understanding the geography or the geology of the area led to more international conflicts as Americans and, and Mexicans tried to understand where the border actually was. So has that border remained stable? Not even close. <laughs> um, so what's interesting about the, 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 the creation of, of the U.S.-Mexico border is that the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo essentially, it, it, it establishes the Rio Grande as part of that border up until about El Paso. And then the rest of it, you know, going west from El Paso, is essentially, it's, it's all a man-made line. It, it's it's an arbitrary line, and that's not to say that all borders are not arbitrary. They are, but but in this case, there's no you know if you go west from El Paso, the U.S. Mexico border line is not delineated by anything except a political boundary on a map uh, and legal language. And then of course there was the little purchased area, the Gadsden you know that came with the Gadsden Purchase, and that was as a result of the desire to place a transcontinental railroad through El Paso right. um, and and through the Southwest, but. You know, in terms of the Rio Grande, the border has not stayed stable at all. And, you know, it, it's stable today, but so I'll, I'll give you two, two um, very important examples. So the, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, Article 5, states that the boundary is the, the Rio Grande and it's the middle of the river, which is, you know, kind of hard to determine, but okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also states that the deepest channel of the river would be the boundary. Well, in 1828, so we're going to go back about 20 years, three of the settlements that I mentioned earlier, Socorro, Islera, and um, San Elisario, they, there was a massive uh, rainstorm here in El Paso, torrential floods, and, and you know we still see that today here, right? And two channels of the river developed. And these three settlements were caught between these two channels in, mm. in essentially an island, in a land island. And uh, people call it La Isla, which is Spanish for the island. And it really didn't make a difference in 1828, but in 1848, after the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the U.S. claimed this island and Mexico claimed this island. And, and most of the people living in La Isla did not want to become part of the United States. And there was a, a skirmish along the border and, and the military had to be called in 
um, to to quash it. And ultimately, um, these three areas became part of the United States. They're part of El Paso County today. But this is one of the the initial sort of border disputes that arose as a result of the treaty. But the bigger one uh, is the Chamisal dispute, which arose in the 1860s. And again, and this is a much larger piece of land, but um, a there was a shift in the river, a massive shift in the river that left a large portion of what Mexicans claimed was their land in the United States. And Mexico just having experienced this tremendous loss of, of territory and, and the, this, this incredible vulnerability, this was not a small thing to them. I mean, if, if you look at the area that, that was disputed, you could say it was three miles of relatively unimportant militarily, historically, politically, economically, la- economically land. But, but it, it was, it's far more significant than that in, in the minds of, of the Mexican government and the Mexican people. Um, and the United States just kind of kicked the can down the road for for quite some time. And 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 the the greater debate became, well, how did the shift occur? Was it was it sudden or was it gradual? And if if the shift had been sudden according to the laws that had been developed, well, the the area was still part of Mexico, but had the had the shift been gradual, then the United States could claim it. Hmm. Really no major arbitration or, or legal attempt at any sort of legal resolution was uh, was made until uh, the late 19th century and the early 20th century. And, and there was arbitration uh, in the 20th century that was that was run by some prominent El Pasoans like Richard and William F. Burgess and, and other prominent attorneys here. And, and they, um, the findings were, and there were, there were three arbiters, one American, one Mexican, and one Canadian, were that most of the land belonged to Mexico and that it should go back to them. What did the United States do? They decided to ignore the arbitration. And this dispute continued well into uh, the 20th century. And it wasn't solved until um, President Kennedy in 1960 in an attempt to maintain cordial relations with Latin America in, you know, as a result of the Cold War. Um, he made sure that the this was finally settled. And in 1964, um, actually 1963, I should say, shortly before uh, President Kennedy's assassination, there was a a resolution made and most of the land went back to Mexico. Um, The United States claimed about 173 acres. But in the meantime, there were a number of American citizens who had settled in this disputed region and about 5,000 families lost their homes as a result. Uh, because this area, be, you know, because it had been like a hundred years under dispute. Exactly, exactly. So and you could have some sort of long, long term settlement. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this area was raised for uh, construction of of the new uh, border. Ch- you know, because the, the 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 river was actually redirected, and and this cement channel was created to to control the water. So you know, with that, with the creation of the new bridge, um, the new bridge of the Americas, and and in getting that land back to Mexico, these people lost their homes. Um, so it, it, this has been a, a very unique and, and very bizarre sort of evolution of the border for the last 170 years or so. So would you say that there's any, um, beyond this question of the borders, lasting impact on on this region from the U.S.-Mexico war? Sure, sure. Um, so... I'll begin by saying that 
I, I've grown up here in El Paso most of my life. And, and to me, the, the border is, is sort of taken for granted. I, I'm used to seeing customs and, and, and border protection. I'm used to seeing the fence. I'm used to seeing uh, the bridges. And this is all a direct result of the, of the U.S.-Mexico war. Now, now, the border has evolved over the last 170 years. But, I mean, it, it's here because of the U.S.-Mexico war and, and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo that ended it. Um, between 1848, after the signing of the treaty, and, and well into the early 20th century, the border was easy to cross. There were no checkpoints. There were no um, customs officials. There was a bridge insofar as that it had to traverse the water which, you know, before Elephant Butte Dam was created, um, was still pretty tumultuous. But there were, I mean, it was easy to cross back and forth. And even well into the 1970s and 80s and even the 90s, people could cross into Mexico and back without too much hassle. Now I hear stories about people just going for dinner. Right. And I mean, that it was just so simple and quick. Well, and, and even when I was, you know, in high school and I had just graduated, it was very easy for me to go to Mexico, catch a soccer game, grab dinner real quick, uh, and then come back. And I didn't, uh, I typically didn't need my ID. I certainly didn't need my passport, but that's completely different now. Um, and so, you know, I'll also say that, that prior to the early 20th century, I would argue that the border was not defined by these physical boundaries like fences or bridges, but it was defined by language and, and artistry uh, stemming from the U.S. boundary surveys and the way people portrayed the border in journals like the ones I mentioned, uh, you know, previously from the soldiers from the U.S.-Mexico War and other people coming into the region and trying to make sense of it. Uh, but, it, you know, after 1924, certainly there is more of an effort to... Um, put caps on immigration. And, and of course, well into the 60s and 70s, there's this creation of, of bridges and, and checkpoints and walls. And, and now today, of course, that's, that's certainly come to a head with, with our current presidential administration. And, and El Paso has, has been in the news quite a bit in the last six months because of this. So, you know, I think it's very easy to take the border for granted. I certainly have. Uh, and I think people who have lived here for some time have, but this is not anything that developed overnight or even within the last 10 years. This is, this is something that has been part of El Paso and, and, Paso and, and Ciudad Juarez and the overall U.S.-Mexico border for 170 years plus. I would say we're so much more in the news. Uh, when I first moved here um, in 2016, uh, in the fall, uh, when I would travel and people would ask me where I was from, you know, they would they would maybe not acknowledge it or or sing Marty Robbins to me, right? Of course. Um, and now, I mean, everyone's like, "Is it safe? What's going on?" Exactly. And and so everyone has at least some idea of what they think El Paso is, and they want some sort of confirmation, right? And you know, I think it's interesting, and and, and yes, this brings us to to contemporary times, but I, I think it's interesting that. And you can kind of see it in the, in, in the 19th century in some of the writings, and I think you see it today. If you're not familiar with this area, if you haven't seen it firsthand or, or spent any significant portion of time here, it's very easy to get sort of caught up in this myth that it's either this exotic area, like in the 19th mm -hmm. century, or today that it's this dangerous, violent, Wild West town. I mean, even when the former governor of Texas claims that there are bombs and cars blowing up in downtown El Paso, which is absolutely not true, it... it 
and P- and this is disseminated throughout the national media and people read it online. I mean, it's it's very easy to think that El Paso is is this crazy lawless town. I mean, I was in Philadelphia earlier this year and in talking to someone, he goes, well, I, I'm familiar with the area, but is it dangerous? And I said, no, El Paso is one of the safest cities in the country and it has been for the last 15 years. And he looked shocked. Um, so, I, and, and the thing is that El Paso is a very peaceful, peaceful town. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's very interesting to see someone without knowledge of the borderland fathom what it could possibly be like. Well, to wrap this up, one of the things I've been asking all of our experts is uh, to imagine that uh, either, you know, the subject we're talking about or the people we're talking about uh, were part of the 21st century. They got their Instagram account. What kind of hashtags would they use to describe kind of themselves? Sure, sure. Well, I, I think I'll offer two. I think one is hashtag Paseños and the other one is hashtag Paso del Norte. And the reason I'm saying that is because El Paso, Ciudad Juarez, it really is and has been for centuries one massive piece of land with with inhabitants. The cultures cannot be easily defined. I mean, there, there's this, this liminal space that exists here in the borderland and, it, and you can't... Um, you can't claim that El Paso is this entity completely separate from Juarez. It's this symbiotic relationship, whether you have family and friends there, whether it's because of international travel or trade. And, and this is something that's occurred for centuries. I mean, this is, this is all one in the same. And the U.S.-Mexico war, you know, I, I talked about it from, a, from a, an American perspective really during this podcast, but it had a tremendous impact on, on Paso del Norte, which is now uh, or, or the, the southern half, which is now uh, downtown Juarez, and, and, and the rest of Mexico. And I think historians going forward need to take a look more at these regional perspectives to see how the U.S.-Mexico War influenced these border regions uh, along the U.S.-Mexico War. Um, and, and also, I think American historians would, would benefit from taking more of a, a perspective from the Mexican approach and, 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 and seeing how um, Mexico was influenced and suffered as a result of the U.S.-Mexico War as well. All right. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you.